Welcome to The Lumber Word, where industry veterans Matt Beamer, Greg Riley, and Ashley Buckholt dissect the world of commodity lumber each week. We bring you up-to-date insights on supply, demand, and market trends, sharing our trading expertise to benefit everyone in the supply chain. Join us for informative and entertaining discussions that guarantee to make you wiser about all things lumber. Welcome, everybody, to The Lumber Word. This is episode 10. Uh, we've got Matt Beamer from Hampton Lumber Sales, Greg Raleigh from Sitka, USA. Uh, I'm Ashley Buckholt. We've got a great guest today, Lance Lambert from Fortune. Thanks for coming on, Lance. Yeah, thank you for having me. And so, uh, you know, I've been covering housing for a little bit, and I'm the real estate editor at Fortune Magazine. And before that, had spent a couple years at uh, Realtor.com really digging into housing data and uh, telling stories there. Appreciate it, Lance. And your, your background is uh, you went to University of Cincinnati and I saw, uh, I saw some Duke information in there too, where you, uh, you spent some time down at Duke. Uh, no, that was just some like data science certificate. But yeah, I studied at UC, studied econ and journalism. And from there, uh, you know, it worked at places like the Chronicle of Higher Education, and then Bloomberg Business Week, I had uh, uh, managed their best business school franchises, like ranking MBA programs. And then I had left and went to Realtor.com, and that's when I really got into housing stuff. It's great. That's great. I I, uh, I look at a lot of your. Can we say tweets now? Or they what are they what are I, they called I'm now with X? Tweets, yeah. Yeah. So I was just looking through a bunch of yours, and I was telling the guys here how. Uh, the one theme I see, and I love it, is the data that you put out mm. um, and the way you aggregate all that. So I know that's something we want to talk about. Matt and Greg, real quick, let's just put some bookends here on last week. Lumber, we talked, was still pretty active last week. I know Greg and Matt, when we chatted today, Matt, you had a good point. It seems that people are shopping things a little bit more now. Less inventory at locations, but you put an inquiry or somebody puts an inquiry out, it's uh, they're really making us do the work to get the business. Does that make sense? Yeah, Ash, I think that the we've been talking for several weeks that there's really good liquidity in the market. Prices have been drifting lower. Inventories in the field are generally on the low side. And use consumption is still pretty decent. I mean, I guess my one of my questions, you know, to you, Lance, is you know, we're looking at a housing start number in the low 1.4 million probably for this year run rate right now. My question is, is what, what, what's your projection for housing starts in uh, 2024? I would kind of love to kind of start by taking a step back and taking a big picture view of the housing market and kind of work to there. Early on in the pandemic, right out of the gate, even while the lockdowns were still occurring, uh, there was this increase in housing demand, both from work from home and also a decoupling of roommates who just wanted more space. So an increased demand in housing for space and the migration element of it from work from home. That coupled with all of the fiscal money thrown in and the monetary money thrown in, we saw housing just take off, right? And you guys felt this more than probably anybody because... And then it got supercharged again when you had the summer of riots 
where all of a sudden people went, hey, I want to get out of the city. Well, all of a sudden, that was like another whole wave, right? Well, and so an increased demand and space. Yeah, exactly. And so the Fed calculates that during the first two years of the pandemic, supply of homes would have needed to increase 300% to match the increase in demand. So the demand for space was actually never fulfilled. So instead, what happened is anytime you have price or you have demand exceed uh, supply like that, you have an overheating of prices, right? And that's what we saw. The biggest two-year overheating in house prices ever. And then that was followed by what we're still experiencing now, which is the biggest rate shock in 40 years. And so the two together have now taken housing affordability and pushed it all the way almost to the top of the, the spectrum in terms of the housing affordability historic charts. It's actually more unaffordable today to buy a home for a new buyer relative to rates, prices, and incomes than it was for somebody in 06. But what we don't have on like then is a lever down on price. Then inventory had built very high. There was the mortgage bubble, and it was followed by an economy that slipped into a sharp and prolonged recession in, in the foreclosure crisis. And so that brought affordability back to the norms. Uh, this go around affordability, unless something changes dramatically, like the, you know, the, uh, we get a recession and the rates, rate environment eases up, the unaffordable aspect of the market is here to stay. And so that is going to be downward pressure on volumes of transactions and probably the ability to really get a meaningful uptick in starts. Lance, can I just like I like just highlight on one thing is, you know, the 07, 08 contraction. You know, we got to a point where it was cheaper for people to own a home than to be a renter. Yeah. You know, and it created this whole sub-industry of these all these companies that that American Homes for Rent, Invitation Homes, that bought up huge numbers of single family homes and rented them out. What's that rent? versus own dynamic right now. The gap between somebody going out and buy, and, and buying a home and that new mortgage relative their, to their incomes is the biggest gap in recorded history between it and rent. So right now the fundamentals are extremely out of whack. And so the downward pressure on the market is that affordability has deteriorated so much and the, the fundamentals are in a very bad spot. The tailwind of the market is what, I, you know, I was talking to Amherst CEO last week, and they own 44,000 homes across the U.S. And he said the tailwind for the market is just the pure technicals, just the pure technicals, the fact that inventory is still down 47% from pre-pandemic levels. And so the technical part of the market has continued to see prices rise, while the fundamental aspect of the market has what deteriorated, but it hasn't seen prices come down in a meaningful way across the country. And so his view is even if mortgage rates were to fall, like maybe more than people think, like 200 basis points, a, two, a full two percentage points, he doesn't think that house prices would explode again. He just thinks that house price growth would then become driven by fundamentals and less so of technicals. Uh, and what he's saying is that pretty much this technical push up in house prices is just very unhealthy. 
So I mean, part of that dynamic, obviously, right now is that existing homes for sale on the market is down to is is I mean, it's like fifty percent of it what it was a year ago, which has been driven people to new homes, which the builders have been able to buy down mortgages and they have reduced prices partially just nominally, but also by the size of the houses that they're making. Forgive me, but you know my joke always is that you know what's Ashley, what uh, what's how what are the what's the the number of existing homes that are that are for that are for sale? Oh, that'd be all of them, Greg. Yes, <laughs> all of them number. are available at a yeah, price. If somebody comes to you with a billion dollars, you're selling your house. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I guess I'm trying to look. I'm going okay. So the new home inventory is now seven point eight months. The pipeline of homes under construction is like just short of 1.7 million. What's going to happen to home prices when the inventory, the new home inventory pumps up 10, 11, 12 months? What's going to happen? So there's some different views here. Somebody like Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, he's been a little more on the bearish side because the fundamentals are just in a terrible spot. And so even as house prices started to rise this year, I talked to him once a month and he never backed down from the fact that he didn't think they had bottomed yet. Uh, he essentially thinks this growth is a head fake and that at some point as units come on more available inventory on the multifamily side comes into the market, rent growth has downward pressure in that period as the economy were to also slow, which is his baseline view, he thinks prices would give up some more there and that it would be kind of a protracted process throughout the decade of very mild house price declines between next year and 2026. And then uh, like more declines on a real basis adjusted for incomes throughout the decade. And he thinks that'll put us back to a norm. But there's other groups that still think that, uh, you know, just based on where active listings are that prices are going to continue to inch up more and that affordability is just going to stay in this very deteriorated place. Um, and those are the people that pretty much view the U.S. as, you know, very structurally underbuilt. And essentially what they're calling for is something like what happened in Canada 15 years ago. So Canada and the U.S. both had fundamentals in a deteriorated place in 06, 07. The U.S. saw a bust. Canada didn't. And so that next decade when, uh, you know, liquidity was back into the system and the economy was in an expansion, Canada just went up and set a new place for fundamentals. And now they're in a place that's just off the charts. You know, it's crazy land up in Canada, house prices relative to incomes right now. While, you know, getting, a, you know, some declines in house prices, people might think is bearish. I think the much more bearish scenario or the people who think prices are just going to continue to march upward and affordability has no pathway back to something that's closer to historic norms. And that also is going to be a place where existing churn in the existing housing market just stays very, very low. And people are pretty much just kind of stuck in their homes. Not a great time to be a, uh, not a so you're not forecasting a career path for mortgage brokers, is that what I hear? Uh, on the, you know, well, I, I try to avoid actual forecasts because I'm the person who aggregates all of them. But I will say oh. things don't look great for churn in the existing side of the market 
<laughs> for the next several years. Uh, which is why we've we've talked for 10 minutes about answering my question is what's your forecast for housing starts next year? <laughs> I'm kind of curious what you guys are actually seeing because you guys have a really good pulse on what what's coming next for the market. And you know, the demand for wood products is a key, you know, signal in the economy. And I think the past like three years have only vindicated your guys' sector of the economy as a as a, a signal for the economy. You know, you look at what happened in summer of 2000 and 2020 when lumber's kind of taking off. And that's really before people understood that housing was about to boom. And then you look at, you know, the pullback in lumber that happened very, very quickly out of the gate in 2022 as it became clear what was going to happen in that interest rate shock. If we go back into the early 2000s, lumber rolled over almost an entire year before the housing market did. Is that, is that right? Lumber prices peaked in uh, 2005. Lumber's kind of an economic indicator, is it not? I mean, we, we saw inflation coming through lumber early, you know, in 2021. But it was transitory, Matt. It was transitory. We joked about it on our little <laughs> show here, you know, about it being transitory, which leads me to my question is I just saw a report from one of the Fed spokespeople or chairman Bowman that talking about they're going to have to raise rates even more. Did you see that? What are your thoughts on that, yeah. Lance? Yeah. So I, I think uh, what's happening right now in the bond market is uh, very interesting because yields continue to push higher. And if you zoom out since May, we have just been on an upward swing. And, and that May was kind of when the fears of like the Silicon Valley bank collapse kind of started to ease. And then the bond market started ticking up again. And I, I think what's happening is just the bond market is coming to terms with higher for longer, that rates will stay prolonged for a longer period of time than previously expected. You know, it, it's really interesting to kind of see how the varying degrees of these economic forecasts. Last year, a lot of people thought it was going to gung-ho right to recession. And then now a lot of people think it's going to be the soft landing Although, you know, that happens every cycle, <laughs> too, where, you know, people think uh, as the interest rate hikes go that we're going to go to recession and then there gets to be this lull and the lag. And then people think, oh, we're through it, soft landing. And then usually, you know, shit kind of hits the fan. So it, it'll be interesting to kind of see what happens heading forward. But right now, the most important thing about this recent run up in yields is it's going to immediately put more pressure on all the interest rate sensitive sides of the economy, which already had very poor affordability. And, you know, we're right there, which is housing and the residential side of the economy. You know, what's probably going to happen in Q4 is that home builders who, you know, raised some prices in the first half of this year are probably going to immediately use that to put more into incentives. They're going to have to pull back on margins again, and it'll be interesting to see how much they have to do it. Uh, but I do think we're in a, a window where there is downward pressure on these builders' profits. As you kind of really start to get that back to pre-pandemic levels, if we do, then I think that could have more of an impact potentially on activity if, if we get there. Well, if you want to look at along the lines of what we've been discussing here, where lumber is kind of a a leading indicator. Well, we went crazy with inflation and now we've gone through deflation. Well, now we're in a in a market that's basically flatlined. You know, I mean, we have a 
100 $150 variance in pricing for the entire year, which is relatively mild. And then the mills have, have gone from making massive profits to now losing money. And so you look in the wider economy and you're talking about builders are now going to have to start losing some money on their margins. I mean, they, they aren't going to lose money, but they're going to have less margin. I'm seeing this morning on the driving to work, I heard that Meta has laid off 21,000 people this year, right? I think big tech has laid off a lot of people in the last six months and nobody seems to be talking about that. I just feel like we're already in a recession. I know nobody wants to use that word, but I feel like we've been in a recession here for a little while and we just want to not talk about it. And Lance, it. You, you came out with the AD, ADP data today, right? You, I saw that. Fiscal policy and monetary policy are fighting each other, where the Fed yeah. has went into its, you know, the biggest rate hike cycle in 40 years, and the fiscal side of the economy continued to pump so much in. I shared a chart yesterday, and it showed construction volumes throughout the economy. Well, that infrastructure bill has pumped up a lot of construction outside of the resi side. And it, it's actually, it's surprisingly high, the construction outside of Resi. And, and so they're fighting each other. And that's going to cause more pain on all the interest rate sensitive sides of the economy if that continues to happen. And so maybe it's just the fact that the fiscal money is still out there and that's kind of delaying the lag. It'll be interesting to kind of see how this plays out. And, you know, the other thing is, if we get to a point here where this deceleration and inflation stops and we do have segments in the economy heat up enough to reaccelerate that a bit that could be the part the time when the fed's like f this we're going to recession and they really push it down and they have to you know break the labor market a bit to kind of roll things over i love the whole idea it's like hey we have to put people out of work and we have to cause pain and suffering to make up for our policy error <laughs> Right. I mean, I love for our, that for our transitory inflation. Right. But I mean, Lance, so I'm I'm beginning to formulate an idea that you're still a really young man. You probably don't remember the, the, the 70s when it was stagflation. Right. It was a period with basically, you know, low or no economic growth and inflation, which was caused by printing way too much mm -hmm. money for a period of time and not having and having anti-growth policies, not pro-growth policies, but anti-growth policies. We also had a huge spike in energy costs, which we're going through again right now. So you bring up a good point. I mean, we still have a lot of money flowing through through the Inflation Acceleration Act. Uh, and I mean, there's still there's still billions and billions in, of dollars sitting in federal agencies waiting to be trickled out the favored few. I agree with you, Greg. And that's the thing. And that's why it could be a prolonged period of pain on the interest rate sensitive sides of the economy, because the Fed can't back off and there's still so much of this money there. And so we're in a period where the economy is still kind of moving along, but there are parts of the economy in recession right now. Um, and so fiscal policy and monetary policy are fighting each other. And going back to your point of stagflation, if that happens, that happens in the back tail. That happens in the back is how it would have to happen is, yeah, while things are kind of chugging along now and people are like, oh, this inflation's not too bad of a deep, you know, not too bad. If inflation's prolonged and they just can't nip it in the butt, you could have a period where the labor market has to go through pain and you still have inflation there 
which is what Jamie Dimon brought up earlier this week, which is stagflation could be a problem down the road. But I, I think it would have to kind of be further in, into the cycle if it were going to manifest. I have a question about commercial real estate and if it could potentially leak into the residential side. So I live in Portland. There's a ton of vacancies downtown. And my boss and I have joked about shorting the commercial real estate market nationwide and in every city where there was riots, you know, for, for like six months. And, you know, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, LA, the downtown areas have kind of been hollowed out because of defund the police, you know, let, let's just let crime happen. And the cops don't care anymore. I mean, in Portland, if you got robbed, they'll just take a report. Nobody's going to show up. They don't care anymore. You get robbed, you get robbed. So what? So, um, you know, what we're seeing on the, on the West coast is a lot of, a a lot of vacancies in downtown commercial real estate. And I'm, I'm at the point now where I, the city of Portland and maybe any West coast city that has the same problem is going to go to the, the, the people that own that property like Norris and Stevens and say, why don't we convert it into residential housing for the poor or because we have a huge homeless problem, right? Or they just say, Hey, we need to re we need to rebuild our tax base here because we've got, we've lost so much tax mm-hmm. revenue from, from property taxes not coming in anymore. Cause it's empty space. Why don't we just redevelop this as like a mixed use? You know, we'll have housing, on the second floor and we'll have shops on the bottom floor. What are your thoughts on that happening here, Lance, over the next five or 10 years? If you follow me on Twitter, I post a lot of housing market data and a lot of it shows that a lot of these cities are, you know, it kind of all time highs for prices. But if you cut the data deeper, because I'm doing the whole metropolitan area, the urban cores for DC and New York have actually fallen a good, a good amount off of the tops. And I don't know if the Zillow data, I'm going to have to check this with other sources, but at least in the Zillow data, it says that New York County, which is Manhattan, Queens and Brooklyn, they're back to pre-pandemic levels, that they've given up all the pandemic gains, uh, which I'm going to have, I need to check that with some more sources. You know, the issues there, you know, are real um, in terms of, you know, this vacant property and how that could affect the market. There's only a, like 120 uh, office to resi conversions ongoing in the country. And what's happening there is that while office to resi conversions can be done quicker, they don't have any cost savings to them. And so the economics just don't make sense. I talked to one CEO of a company who, instead of doing office to resi conversions, He's doing office to storage conversions, and it's literally just putting storage units into these office buildings. That's what it is. And so people who don't have room in their apartments can go there and like store bikes and stuff like that. And there's actually more of that happening than office to resi conversions. So office to resi conversions, not very bullish on. But what I think could happen is if we got an actual downturn where employers got more leverage on workers, I think we could see CEOs use that to finally bring a lot more people back into the office. And, uh, you know, that's why you always see these commercial real estate CEOs in particular. You know, I I think they would actually be okay with uh, maybe a recession. So some of the surveys that we do over at Fortune, we survey Fortune 500 CEOs. And since 2020, 
75% have said they would like to reduce office space. And then 75% also continue to say they would like employees back into the office more. So those are those two things kind of work against each other. But I do think that latter one of the fact they still want people in the office more speaks to the fact if they were given the leverage, they could pull more people back into the office. And so the reason I bring that up for Resi is where that would matter the most are the Zoom towns, which have already seen more softening and then also far out exurbs, which haven't quite seen much softening. But if we were to see any type of faster reversal in the work from home trend, I think that would be very important for the housing market, especially if it occurred during a downturn. Lance, I was at an event a couple of weeks ago and I kind of feel like we're like in this really interesting time just in these most recent weeks in housing. I was in Greg's office this morning and we were watching, flipping through different channels. Everything was housing related. Everything on the financial channels was housing related. People trying to figure out, Matt, they brought the question up about um, converting commercial over to residential today on TV, right? Somebody else was on talking about dual ownership where multiple people buy a house now or buy a, a second house. But at this convention, you know, a couple of weeks ago, which are builders of multifamily, single family, suppliers to them, everybody was still relatively, this was my own opinion, pretty bullish on the building side of things as of a couple of weeks ago. And it seemed, I think I made a comment yesterday about it, everybody was basing decisions off of interest rates being lower in the future, not higher. Up until a few weeks ago, a lot of the prognostication out there was, in 2024, 2025, we're going to see back to 5%, right? I mean, this has been ongoing. And for some reason, I, I don't feel that or I don't understand where that's coming from. It seems to me an object in motion stays in motion. And right now, rates are just starting to go higher. So we're, we're in an early stage of this. Am I wrong? Could I be wrong there, Lance? I, I think what you said, you know, I don't like to make predictions, but I, I think what you said makes a lot of sense to me, which is, we're kind of seeing a market, like I said, the fiscal is fighting the monetary and we're kind of chugging along longer than expected. And it's going to increase pain on the interest rate sensitive side of the economy. I do think there is a lot of bullishness still for single family homes because there's an in industry belief that, you know, vacancy rates are very low and that given demographics, there's still a lot of demand for single family, especially as we kind of get into that period where we have more move up from the millennials. And, and less so on the multi. There's been a lot of optimism too in the industry about rates. And on that one, they haven't been right. And they haven't been right for 15, 16 months. And both, they didn't think it would go up as high. I don't have a lot of faith. Uh, I do find it interesting how the industry views its supply and demand side economics. But on the rates, it's just so complicated because it's the whole freaking global economy. And it's really hard to pin down. And especially in a place where deficit spending is this high, even though we have gone through this big of a rate hike cycle. And so one thing I'll say is that I shared a chart two days ago and it showed how the 10-year treasury has reacted every time the Fed has gotten to that terminal rate, the top rate. And so I think it, it would be fair to say that a lot of People believe now we are at the top rate from the Fed, at least for the short term period of time. And the Fed, a lot of Fed uh, 
presidents have come out and said, hey, you know, we're not really too interested in hiking more. It's kind of more wait and see. And so if you look at the historic chart, every time we've gotten to the terminal rate, the 10-year treasury has rolled over, right? The past four weeks or two months that we've been there, we just keep going higher. So the rates are not reacting how they normally would to the Fed being at the end of the rate hiking cycle. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that still goes back to the fact that fiscal is fighting monetary. Well, and it's also, Lance, we've never been in a situation where the Fed had this massive trillion dollars of balance sheet. And we're kind of in this dual thing right now is they're raising rates while they're also increasing supply. I mean, post-financial crisis, all of the deficit spending by the government was monetized by the Fed. They bought up all that paper, right? So, you know, that's how they kept interest rates low. They, you know, they didn't have the rates that didn't have to go up because they were buying it off. So you've got this kind of twin, this twin right now. And they're also rolling off all the more, you know, they, they pushed mortgage rates down low during the pandemic by buying up all, at, I think at some point, at one point, they own 60% of the mortgage paper. And this is, that's unprecedented. And that's why I think Jamie Dimon said, hey, what about, what about a 7% Fed funds rate? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was his number. I was just looking at, you know, the average 30-year mortgage rate now is up to like 8.4%. We're pushing into that eight handle. I mean, I guess you know, my silver lining for, for housing and for our part of the industry is, to your point, we're not overbuilt like we were in, in 07. And there is that underlying demand. So it's not like we're going to fall from a million four housing starts to uh, two or 300,000 like we did in you know, January 2009. Well, I think those are the two silver linings for construction. One is the home builder margins, which got reached uh, the highest level was pretty much ever during the pandemic and have come down a bit, but are still above pre-pandemic level. What did they get? What did they get to? Uh, what did the margin I, I get to? I could send it to you afterwards. The net profits on these, the net incomes are still up like 50, 60% on a lot of these builders. So I was going to say long-term, it used to be like it was a nine or 10% business, yeah. right? Well, well, yeah. If it was nine, 10, it would be like 15, 16. Yeah. And it got, and it gotten high as 20 yeah. plus. And yeah. so that gives mm -hmm. them the ability to do net effective pricing affordability adjustments when, when needed. And so I think this is a period when needed, which is the back half of the year, the seasonally weaker period where rates have continued to push higher, you know, this is probably a time when they got to make more of the affordability adjustments. And then the second is what you said, which is the structural and the secular side of the economy, which is believed to be underbuilt for single family housing. And so the real issue here is just this economic backdrop, which has become a mess because of this liquidity bubble and then fiscal side continuing to push higher despite inflation raising from the grave. So Lance, I've got a two-part question for you. And uh, hey, I appreciate you know your insights because you're looking at this totally differently than we are. Over the next 12 months, what, what are the thoughts that go through your mind that give you the most optimism when it comes to the housing market and the state of our country's economic overall layout? And then part B would be what are the what are the thoughts of yours that give you the nightmares? So what's the the best case scenario in your in your opinion and then, and then the worst case scenario? Yeah, so in your the opinion? good news here 
is that inflation has decelerated. And we know that it could decelerate a bit more as some of the, you know, rent sides, the rent side plays out into the data. That's the good news. And I think that brings some optimism. Um, And the other thing is that the economy has also stayed, while there's weakening on the interest rate sensitive side of the economy, has stayed somewhat resilient. So maybe there's that possibility that we kind of land this plane into a good place. I think the headwinds there are the fact that the, the supply side, in particular, on like in autos, like how much is that going to ease up too? Because we're not in a great place for either of the supply sides for the interest rate sensitive sides of the economy, which are auto and housing. And so if those two don't have enough easing in terms of the supply, it can continue to put upward price pressures. And those types of things are the situation where you know you could have um, you know prices begin to ac- accelerate the growth of them, and that kind of puts us into the more bearish view, which is the Fed really attacks the economy. And so, little things that I'm paying attention to, like the UAW strike, we need this auto supply to continue to push into the economy because just like how housing got behind and then overheated on prices and then saw interest rates jump up. The auto side of the economy saw the very same thing. And if you look at a lot of like consumer polling, while the unemployment rate is very low, people are very pessimistic. And I think a lot of that is because affordability for two of the biggest things in their life, auto and housing, have just become so strained. And I, I think so cars are still really high right now. I haven't shopped. Any I think cars they just hit their highest highest monthly payment again, right? Affordability for housing and auto is the worst in my life. Now, if you go back to the early '80s, a bit of a different picture: eighteen percent rates. Uh, but yeah, autos and housing very big pain point for existing homeowners. They can uh, avoid some of that unaffordability because you know fixed debt. But for, you know, car owners, not, not necessarily. And so that feeds into stress and feeds into stress on the, the latter half of the economic ladder, too. Because it takes me back to my financial tip of the day. Always buy used cars, people. Always. I've never had a car payment in my life. I have two used cars. And, and you know, the key for me on used cars is I'm always listening. Like if somebody's about to get rid of a car, uh, you know, yeah. and I know that kind of runs well. You know, I'm willing to kind of jump in there, even if it, you know. Write a check and buy used. Yeah. Greg was asking me why I was keeping my jalopy way out in the par- middle of the parking lot last night. I was wondering if somebody well, was like, going to hit it. I didn't want anybody to dig it up. Hey, Ashley, I'm driving my 96 Toyota Tacoma. It's right out in the parking lot right now. So, that thing's about to fall apart. Here's a quick so, Lance, in, in, um, in our market, the world, Greg, Matt, and I live in, in the lumber market. Historically, there's more lumber used in repair and remodel than there is in new home construction. I think, Matt and Greg, that's probably still the case. So with more people being at home with low mortgages, not looking to move, people in smaller houses, are we going to see an uptick in repair and remodel that we normally haven't seen? Or is that going to be pressed by the rates and people's ability to take out a a HELOC and that type of thing? You're getting right to it, which is the demand for it is there right? People want to do that. And they're going to be locked in because of these low interest rates they have. But the issue is that Jerome Powell intentionally has taken away the cash out refinances. 
I believe personally, that's a part of the reason that they moved so quickly on pushing up interest rates last year, because the speed at which they did it told the long told the bond market and the long tail side, the, the long term rates to move up very fast. And so mm-hmm. effectively, Jerome Powell, within a two-month period, was able to shut down cash-out refinances. And I think that was important for them because of how fast home equity had soared up, 40% jump in home values in two years. And, oh, you have inflation, which has taken off. You, you better kind of tamp down on people's ability to actually tap into that. And, and before I answer your question, I also want to point out that there was a Fed paper done last year. And in it, it calculated that one third of non-housing inflation was driven by the increase in home values. So the increase in home values, which you know created more cash out money for refinances uh, because people were also enticed because rates were so low. And then also the fact that consumers felt so wealthy. And I think stocks roaring and crypto also played a role there. But the Fed's belief was that the rip up in home values, because it happened so fast, was helping to accelerate inflation across the board. And so I I think they're still in a place where they don't want rates to come down too much and cash out refinances to be tapped into a lot. And so I think that fights against that natural demand, which is what you're talking about, which is the fact people with two, three, four percent mortgage rates, life still happens they can't move, they're going to want to upgrade their home and do things like that. Uh, so I, I think the demand for the market is there. Uh, it's just constrained by the rate environment. I just want to leave everybody with this one thought. Just think about this. When something gets terribly screwed up, is the person that screwed it up the best person to get you to fix it and get to the other side. <laughs> because that's where we are. We have the people that are in charge are the people who had no clue. We were talking about this on things on this show six, nine months, a year before they all of a sudden woke up to, oh, we've got a problem with inflation. You know, if Jerome Paul, Powell decides to listen to our podcast, shame on you. You sold out the country. To get renominated, you bought in to the to the lie of transitory inflation, so that the administration could pass the Inflation Increase Act, and you sold out the country to get renominated. Shame on you! Shame on you! That's that's my rant for the day, Lance. I don't know. <laughs> I get one rant every week, and I, I love think it. That actually is so good to me. I do think that people especially in power, should have been listening more to housing. I really, the one that I always call attention to was the fiscal package passed at the beginning of 2021, because at that point, the economy had already rebounded and housing was ripping. And while it wasn't a fully in the data, we knew at that point that home prices had already jumped 20 something percent. And so then you're going to go out and you're going to throw all of this money onto the fire. And so there was like this belief among them that the economy was far worse than it actually was. I I talked to Neil Kashari twice in 2020, once in the summer, and then once heading into 2021. And his view of the coronavirus 
uh, pandemic was one of, you know, they think they essentially saved off the Great Depression and that there was a very, very high risk that we would double dip. And I think if you go back and you look at the data entering into 2021, I don't think the economy was as weak as some of the policymakers believed. And I actually think it would had moved into a place where it's probably moving into an expansion that they then just accelerated. And so they might have cut the whole cycle just shorter than it would have been otherwise. That, that, was, the, that was the one before the Inflation Increase Act. Yeah. Right. At, at that point, you're just, you know, you just don't care. Greg, it's the same people that shut the economy down and, and created a generation of children that are afraid of themselves and other people because they might get sick. So, you know, if you're looking to those people for your for your economic wisdom, then, you you know, you maybe you should try somebody else to listen to like your own like your own common sense. But, okay? but, but these are the people so that you're are talking about. We shut the country down over something that has a ninety nine point seven percent survivability in hindsight. And, and so, you know, hey, it is what it is. But they basically they've re- overreacted to everything. So which leads us to believe that Lance, they'll probably overreact again when some new data comes out in the future. Yeah, that they so I, like. I think Correct. one of the best economic models you could probably point to, I, and I don't know if you guys have seen that meme of that guy who says, if ha, how, how high you F around is how high you find out. Yeah. Was it a six, a seven, eight? You know, you kind of find out at that same amount. I hope, you know, for all of our sakes, I hope it's not a high. Th- I, I remember the 70s and 80s. I was a child. My father was in the lumber business in the uh, early 80s and and rates were 19 percent. And, you know, it was not a fun period of time for anybody in this country. And it had nothing to do with lumber and housing. It had to do with the entire economy. Right. Like every American was going through a bad period of time. It, it wasn't just the lumber guys. So let's just cross our fingers that that kind of stuff doesn't occur here over the next three or four years, because yeah, it's not going to make any of us happy, right? It's just it's going to be painful yeah, for everyone. Exactly, and so, but I do think uh, having gone through that, and so the the finding out part doesn't necessarily need to be like some bad downturn, but it could be like what we're seeing now, which is a very prolonged period where rates are just way higher than people expected, and so there's really just. Uh, and so we feel it on the affordability side of it. Well, you know, the, the the downside of rates is it makes it harder for you to buy a house. But the positive side is if you're going to save money, you're going to get paid more for that service. So, you know, there's there's always a another side of the coin. In my first house in 1995, I, I bought for, I have to kind of whisper, I paid $149,000 and thought I was getting ripped off. But I paid, I paid 8.5% on my 30. And that was with a first-time guarantee as a veteran because I had the uh, the veterans department what they call that the first FHA or it's the you know you get you get a government guarantee to back your your loan if you're a veteran so I had eight and a half percent and then I refinanced a few years ago a few years after that at like six and a half and then in 2005 we bought a home I think around six and then it wasn't until like the great recession and then the last I don't know. Well, this last one where we had the, the coronavirus kind of freak out, those are the two best refis I ever did. I got down to like 4% on one of them. And then I did a, uh, we bought this last house at 2.75, I think is what, is what we did. Am I going to sell my house anytime soon? No, 
But is 2.75 or 4% like a realistic expectation for people to buy yeah. a house? No. Those were flukes, right? 8 is more normal, really. 6 to 8% is kind of the sweet spot as far as as I as I yeah, so in my life. Matt, you know, I you know, I hate to be a one I hate to be a one upper, but <laughs> I hate, you know, I hate that. I don't want to be a one upper. I like it, Greg. Do it. <laughs> 1986, I bought a condo in Chicago, 13 and a quarter percent interest. Um, uh. fortunately, um Ashley and Mike Wisniewski like moved into it a number of years later and helped me pay that mortgage off. No. <laughs> well, well, hey, Lance. And so that's one of the, the, the pickles for brokers, which is not only do they have half of this market plus that are just never going to refi again, like refi is just done unless you're in an economic spot where you have to do a cash out. But they also, because affordability has gotten so high, there's just so much less churn that's going to happen in the existing side of the market where, you know, they, they, they've kind of gotten pinched for a prolonged period of time. Well, hey, Lance, we want to be respectful of your time here, but I, I really think if you don't follow Lance on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, it's at News Lambert. Is that correct, Lance? Yep, at News Lambert, yep. Lance is a great follow. I mean, I, I read his stuff every day. If you really like data, he's the uh, the person you should go to. Where else can we read some of your stories and yes, publications? So, at? Uh, on Twitter, at News Lambert. On threads, at News Lambert. Uh, they can Google Lance Lambert Fortune and find my Fortune author page. And then on uh, Tuesday, I have something interesting I'm announcing that I'm going to be m moving on to to build. Oh, awesome. Whoa, whoa. Nice. whoa. Did you just drop the name? He's dropped the name there, huh? I mean. <laughs> I know, yeah. That's called a I teaser. Know. My parents don't even know. So actually, anyway, yeah. Oh, wow. Hey, Lance, um, listen, this is this has been really, really fun. Awesome having you, man. I, I hope yeah, we can have an opportunity to have you again down the yeah, road. Uh, yeah, I loved coming on here. And thanks for having me, Matt, Ashley, and Greg. This was great. And that wraps up another enlightening episode of the lumber word we want to extend our sincerest gratitude to lance lambert the real estate editor for fortune for sharing his invaluable insight into the complex world of housing economics whether you're a first-time home buyer a lumber trader a seasoned real estate investor or simply someone curious about the dynamics of the housing market we hope you found this episode both informative and thought-provoking remember to follow lance lambert on twitter or x as some people now call it, at News Lambert. That's at sign News, N-E-W-S-L-A-M-B-E-R-T for his daily updates and analysis on housing and economics. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. We need you as subscribers to continue to grow these podcasts. Leave a review if you can. Your feedback is highly appreciated and helps us continue to bring you quality content. Before we sign off, we have an exciting announcement. Stay tuned next week for a surprise guest that will continue to add to the education of the listeners in the world of lumber. You won't want to miss it. We'll be back soon with more exciting topics and engaging guests. Until then, keep exploring, keep learning, and keep listening to The Lumber Word. Have a great day.